This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, May 31st, the Circumcision Conundrum Edition. I'm Gabriel Roth. I'm an editor at Slate, and I'm the father of Eliza, who's seven years old, and Leo, who is three and three quarters. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. I'm a journalist and podcaster in New Hampshire, and I am mom to Henry, who is 16, Teddy, who is 15, and my stepdaughter, Lily, who is 17. And I'm Carmel Wallace, a writer and podcaster in Oakland, California, and I'm the father to Georgia, who was 12, and Ezra, who was 15. Boy, it's good to be back on the show. Today, we have a question about where babies come from and how to explain it. And we will be joined by a special guest, Wendy Zuckerman of the podcast Science Versus, to talk about the removal of the foreskin from the penis of a newborn human boy. What does science have to say about circumcision? Plus, as always, we will share our triumphs and fails. We will make recommendations. And on Slate Plus, I will tell the story of my own circumcision. If you want to hear that segment, you know what to do. Uh, Triumphs and fails. Carvel, it's been a while since I've been here. We've been hearing your triumphs and fails. What about this week? Triumph or fail? Uh, this week was uh, a, a fail for my son and maybe a triumph for me, but a, a painful one. Anyway, he he, um, he is working was working on one of his final projects for one of his classes, and he got this vision that he was going to make for his final project this short video. And the short video involved, um, unlike uh, he does a lot of videos for his project because he's now he's really into filmmaking and he's into editing and he's going to film camp this summer. And this is this is as of now, this is his stated sort of like passion. And so it was great. So he had this idea for a film that he was going to make. And um, it ended up being rather complex because it turns out he needed to be at a certain location and he needed certain props and we had to require the props. And he also needed multiple parties to take part in this. He needed someone to do this and someone to hold the shotgun mic and someone to do camera. And he really was trying to do this thing. So um, entering into this weekend, starting around Thursday, he was planning on doing this shoot on Monday. And uh, as I started, as he started unfolding to me what his plans were, it became evident to me that he has in no way engaged in the kind of preparation necessary in order to successfully have a shoot of this size because this is actually a production because other people are involved. So um, he needed to like, it involves smashing old electronics. So he had to acquire old electronics, which he did some of at the Salvation Army. And then a friend of his spotted a 1990s television on the street in Chinatown. And being a good father, I, you know, he couldn't carry it, but he texted it to me and I went made a special trip over to Chinatown to pick up this TV, which is still in the back of my car. And that's where this story is going. So um, so Thursday, Ezra's like planning things out. I'm like, hey, you should probably make a production schedule. And it sounds like this has a couple of shots in it. You should probably do a storyboard because you need to actually plan through these shots because you've got so many people involved. You don't want to waste time. You want to actually have a plan when you go in there. Dad, don't tell me what to do. God, it's so annoying. I can't believe it. Dad, I'm doing this. And it turned into, it was this really tense thing between us. Every time I would try to offer some advice, 
um, he would push back with, I can't stand it. You're always trying to control me. You won't ever let me do anything on my own. And I was like, I'm aware that it feels that way to him, but I'm also 100% aware that if he doesn't do the stuff that I'm telling him to do, this shoot is probably not going to happen or it's going to be a disaster and it's going to suck. But <clears throat> being a father and having dealing with kids for a while, I realized eh, there's only so much I can do. So I generally backed off. I helped him where he needed help. I helped him pick up the equipment. I got the TV, like I said. Uh, I, I said every time I had some advice, like I heard him on the phone talking through the plan with one of his friends. And I realized that he hadn't, he had been, he was trying to borrow a mic from this kid who has this great mic, but the kid was really reluctant. He had him on speakerphone. And I, it was so clear that Ezra like hadn't planned anything. So that without a specific plan, this kid was really reluctant to just have Ezra take his technology. And so when he got off the phone, I was like, can I share with you an observation? He's like, yeah, what dad? I'm like, you know, if you're going to borrow stuff from people, you have to be really specific. Okay, fine. Blah, blah. So this whole thing went on fighting, fighting, but I just stayed out of it. And then the, and then um, by Sunday night, it became clear that like all the people he thought he could rely on to do it for various reasons dropped out. All this stuff wasn't going to happen. The location that he had planned, that he thought he was going to do, he hadn't actually checked and cleared the location. He just assumed they would roll up and smash these electronics at this location on the street. And that didn't work out. And he ended up not being able to do the shoot at all. And he was really depressed about it the next day, like really bummed on Monday. And I think he's still pretty bummed today, actually. And I didn't say I told you so. I really didn't. But I felt really bad for him. But I also felt like, in some ways, I was like it. I do kind of feel like this is good because he gets to see that maybe some of the stuff I was saying is true. That if you're going to do an actual production, not just a one or two guy shoot, you have to actually plan stuff in advance. But also, I feel really bad because he's so bummed. He now has this like a monitor, a VCR that he bought from Salvation Army, and a TV that I'm carrying around in the back of my car that I don't know what the hell we're going to do with this shit. And it's just the kind of stuff that happens when you have a creative kid. <laughs> and uh, so I feel really bad for him, but a little bit vindicated. That's my story. Mm. Yeah, seems like at least you, uh, if it doesn't come off, maybe you helped him understand why that would happen <laughs> and, and <laughs> helped him get his head around maybe doing it differently next time. Scale, Maybe. too, right? It's so hard. The issue was the yeah. scale of this project. <laughs> like the kid, when yeah. kids like, come up with an idea and it's just too big and you know it's too big and you're like, I have an yeah. idea. Instead, why don't you do like a little like intimate one-man sh one man show? Mom, why are you always bringing <laughs> yeah. me down? Exactly. That's I don't exactly want to do a one-man show, said. Mom. No, that, that was, he was, and at one point he was like, you're not even congratulating me. Like, I'm organizing this whole thing. I put all, I've called all these people. I've really organized this whole thing. You're not even like honoring that, you know I mean? <laughs> Just like I honoring mean, that because yeah. well, I secretly oh. know it's not going to happen and you haven't really done anything. <laughs> but C Congratulations, Ezra. We uh, honor you. It's we so hard you. to be 15. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rebecca, what about you? Triumph or fail? Uh, huge triumph. I um, I work at a place that has that kind of policy where like you have to use your vacation days by a certain time, otherwise you don't get to use them. So I had to take last week off of work just so I could use these stupid days. And I decided to redecorate Teddy's room. I mean, I hadn't painted it or done anything to it really since we moved into our house. And he was just a completely different. He was 10 when we moved into our house and he's, you know, 15 now. And it's like the difference between 10 and 15 is immeasurable when it comes to room decor. Um, so I just, without him being home, 
did the whole thing myself. I did not consult him on any of the decision making. <laughs> I bought him a bed because he needed a bigger bed. I redid his ceiling. I painted all the walls. I chose his sheets. I used a lot of stuff we kind of already had, but like it is completely different than it was. I did a bunch of like really creative stuff with his record collection. And he came home and he loved it. And I was so <laughs> relieved because this was like a 50, 60 hour project. And about halfway through it, when I was like the very worst part, like up to my elbows in like a bucket of spackle and like doing all this mm. shit to the hardwood floor to try to repair it. And like, you know, hanging these shelves and having my drill break and having to go buy a new drill bit. And it was just like terrible, like a halfway point. It occurred to me like, I have not asked him for any input on this at all. <laughs> he could hate it, but he didn't. He loves it. He absolutely loves it. He took a bunch of photos of it. He had some friends over on Sunday. He brought them all upstairs to hang out. His room is very small, so there were like 10 kids in there. It was very funny. But it all worked out. Like my control freak uh, impulse to just try to like, you know, knock this thing out with no consultation uh, turned out to be the right one. I was very lucky indeed. And um it all worked out. He's got a nice, clean, new room that he doesn't hate after I put 60 hours of, of work into it. So that's my triumph for the week. That is so good. That's a huge triumph. Like, <laughs> Congratulations. I feel good for you. Yeah, yeah my awesome. heart leaps in excitement for you. <laughs> I'll share a photo of the after on the on the Facebook page so everybody can see. Can you do a before and after? Can you, can you? I think can you I have a before them? somewhere that I can pull out. Yes, nice. absolutely. So I have a triumph this week. It's it, it's not a hundred percent clear that this triumph can be attributed to me, uh, but I'm going to claim credit for it anyway. It's a kind of slowly unfolding triumph. Um, so Eliza reads now, as I've talked about, and and she doesn't want to stop reading. And she has her book, and she will like she reads it in the morning when we're trying to get her out of the house, and then we get her out of the house, and she reads it while walking to the bus stop, and she reads it on the bus, and she reads it walking into her school, and she reads it riding on the elevator in the school up to her classroom on the seventh floor, and and it's very hard when she's reading. It's very hard to get her to look up, and. Obviously, like some of this is she's just she loves to read and she gets caught up in these stories that she's reading. Um, but it's also you can tell there's a there's a way in which it has it it's helpful to her shyness that like if you are anxious around other people, there's an opportunity to escape from other people if you have a book with you. And obviously, most of us know about this to some extent. I certainly like I have a fucking cell phone in my pocket and I use it in that exact way uh, a fair amount. And, and so, I you know, it's familiar to me. Um, but it's tricky because especially because she's young and she like, I, at least I, I know how to have conversations with people. Like I, I'm as socialized as I'm going to get. Um, and I, I've been slightly like, I want to make sure that she doesn't just like spend too much time disappearing into her book and not learn how to engage with other people. And there have been times when we were riding in that elevator in her school and there's another girl from her class next to her and the girl will like look at her and be like, hi, Eliza, and be like really happy. And she just sort of grunts and like, pushes her nose further into the book um and that feels not great to me like i i slightly worry that you know I, like she has friends it's not that she doesn't have friends but look here's someone being nice to you and you respond in a nice open way to them and then maybe you have more friends or whatever i've seen this happen a couple times and mm -hmm. i i i brought it up with her once recently after like there was a girl who 
was very clearly trying to talk to her and like thought that she was fun and and wanted to talk to her on the bus and and Eliza just wouldn't get into it with her and I said to her afterwards you know that girl was very clearly wanted to be friendly with you and be your friend and and when you have your book up like that then it it prevents you from from having friendly conversations with people and just be aware of that I just want you to know that that's mm. a thing that's happening kind of mm-hmm. um and then over this past weekend, it was Memorial Day weekend, we went away with my folks. We went to a hotel in the Catskills, and um, she had her book with her there a lot too. And we're riding in the elevator, and there's another girl. There's a lot of families staying in this hotel on the Memorial Day weekend. And um, there's another girl there, and Eliza looks up and sees the girl who's sort of peering at her shyly and, and not saying anything. And Eliza looks up and sees her and puts down the book, and with a wide open smile, she said, hi, I'm Eliza. What's your name? And Aww. I have never seen her act like that. <laughs> I myself have never acted like that. <laughs> it, it reflects a kind of quantum leap in the ability to make friends and be sociable. And and um, I don't know if it was in response to me pointing out her behavior to her before, but um, it, it right. was incredibly moving to me. And, and I would love to think that it's my triumph, although, of course, really it's hers. That is phenomenal. I mean, like, that's almost inconceivable i would almost think you were making that up because it's too it's too perfect yeah and my like, jaw kind of hit I, the floor yeah 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 and that, i mean i don't i almost want to issue a disclaimer to all the parents out there like <laughs> yeah, this will pro- you will probably not see success of this level from anything you do so just take it for entertainment purposes only <laughs> yeah that's right that's right yeah, results may vary awesome, your results may very much vary but that's awesome though good for her good for you guys Okay, before we move on, let's do the business. Uh, as always, if you have a question you want us to answer on air, you can leave us a message at 424-255-7833 or send us an email at momanddadatslate.com. Our Facebook group is booming right now. Um, lots of great discussion about the show and about other parenting topics. People are posting their own questions, their own triumphs, their own fails. People are helping each other out. Uh, it's an incredibly nice friendly, good vibe. If you like this show, I think uh, you probably want to join the group. Search for Slate Parenting on Facebook. Also, we want to let you know about another podcast. It's called Six Minutes. It's an audio mystery podcast for your whole family. 11-year-old Holiday is pulled from the icy waters of Alaska with no memory of who she is or where she came from. Are her mom and dad really who they say they are? And when she begins to develop incredible abilities, she soon discovers she's not alone in the world. You can check out Six Minutes wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, They've let their audience know about us. You can hear a preview of that show if you stick around after the credits of this episode. On Slate Plus today, I will be telling the story of my own circumcision. If you want to hear that segment and another like it every week, well, not much like it, but a little bit like it, uh, you can sign up for Slate Plus, slate.com slash Plus. It's just $35 for your first year. There's a free two-week trial where you pay nothing. Uh, you get extended ad-free versions of Mom and Dad Are Fighting and all of your other favorite Slate shows, plus a bunch of other great benefits. So if you want to help Support this podcast and get those extended ad-free episodes. Go to slate.com slash momanddadplus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, back to the show. 
Okay, we are really happy to have Wendy Zuckerman on the show today. She's the host of the great podcast Science Versus, a podcast that takes on myths, fads, and fake news to find out what science can and can't tell us about the world. Today, we're going to be talking about the subject of her episode, which will come out about an hour after hour episode today. What are we talking about, Wendy? We're talking about circumcisions. Awesome. <laughs> I thought so. Yes. Get your popcorn ready. Can't so, wait. what is circumcision? So, I'm glad we started with the 101 started. here. Well, should we start from when two people love each other very much? Uh, that's actually our may, next. That's our next question. Right. They may yeah. uh, have a baby, maybe a baby boy, and then um, parents have to make a tough decision. Some, for some it's tough, for some it's not. Um, they have to decide whether they're going to have a circumcision for their kid. And this is where you uh, you chop off a little bit of the foreskin. So actually, sometimes it's a little bit more of the foreskin, but you chop off the foreskin of the, the boy's penis. That's and, what happens. And I do that myself? Um, well, interestingly, for this episode, <laughs> we spoke to a urologist who actually did do it himself for his son. <laughs> Um, but Whoa. you know, I would think you would not do it. Um, and and the, the process by which you do it, there's several procedures out there. The, the funnest and most graphic is that there's a, a device that looks a little bit like a cigar cutter. And so you just pull, uh-huh. you pull the foreskin forward and then you, you chop it off. Um, okay. But, but so obviously the, the first question we had is, you know, what are the risks here? It sounds terrifying. Mm. Um but but the risks are actually very minor. This procedure is done is done a, is done a lot, and the, while there are some serious consequences, they're, they're very rare. When mm. you go online, though, about this, it's like anything online. Uh, people are very passionate about this, and they claim lots of other side effects happening in the long term, like when the kid grows mm. up, falls in love, and starts having sex of their own. And and first of all, what are tell us a little bit more about what are those online theories and and what does the science say about them? Well, well, I think I mean perhaps have you guys heard of this one? This idea that the uh, once for a, for a man who's circumcised, the penis will get a little bit, the tip of the penis will get a little bit harder, and therefore it'll be less sensitive. Is this something you guys mm. have heard around the locker room? Uh, I have heard. I, I have actually heard it online. I'm, I'm not sure I've ever been in a locker room, to be honest. I, yeah. Just yeah. not poking each rooms. other's penises, being like, "Is this true? Let's test this scientifically." Um, no, I mean, it's, and so this is this is um, mainly deployed this argument from a, a group that are called the Intactivists. It's a it's okay. a, a yeah, it's a very fun name because the politically correct term for an uncircumcised penis is intact. Because mm-hmm. uncircumcised uh-huh. suggests that you are you are lacking in some way when really so you're talking about intact versus circumcised, and so the okay. intactivists are promoting this idea that we should you know we should leave babies intact. Um, uh-huh. They can be they can range. We've we've already had you know some discussions with with the intactivists. They can range from just sort of from men who really feel like something was taken from them when they were younger. They're very upset about their circumcisions now uh, to people who are, who are really quite angry that this happens. They call it child abuse. They compare it to female genital mutilation. And so it's, it's, a, it's a range of men. But to take it back to the sensitivity question, um, interestingly, we did find some great and very fun science that actually tested this theory. Like, does, does a circumcised penis, is it actually less sensitive? And does it actually reduce male, like, the, the enjoyment that men get out of sex? Because it makes sense, right? It does... Like when I talk to friends about it, they're just like, yeah, yeah, that sh- surely that happens. 
But when you test it in the lab, I don't want to give away the entire episode. And, uh, <laughs> but I'm just so excited to tell you about that because literally to test this in a lab, you have scientists poking and prodding penises like they're intact and circumcised. And what they find, generally speaking, is that there is no difference in sensitivity. So hmm. this idea is is just not true. Do they test them in various, if you'll excuse me, states of tumescence? I am so glad you <laughs> asked that question. No, they don't. So when we asked, we asked one of the researchers, Carolyn Pucal um, from Canada, just such a such a funny and great woman, um, who who did this study with her team, and they only so far we've got how many studies? There's a handful of studies in this area. Three of them have found no difference. <laughs> One of them mm-hmm. haven't. I know the, the puns are out of this world. Um, the, the, <laughs> I'm, the I'm resisting all of them because this is ostensibly a family show. So right, go, sorry. <laughs> moving on. We can keep them. <laughs> I'm just going to chuckle occasionally just to acknowledge <laughs> the existence of a pun. I'm not going to make the pun. So, That's what we'll do going forward. <laughs> yes. So the so they do not test them at, at various rates of erection. They're always flaccid. So this hmm. does this does put some question marks. And when we asked Caroline, Whoa. why not test them when they're erect? Like this doesn't make like what's the point? She she was very delicate, and she was like, "Well, look, we've got to do this in the lab. Like you're not going to hmm. get it. You know, there there was some um, discretion issues, really. But really, they've never watched Masters of Sex because they didn't give a shit about that on in, that show. In, yeah, no. I was going to say, <laughs> isn't mean, this a common? From what I've tested, not yeah. a lot of that stuff's been peer reviewed. Um, but. <laughs> And this has, but, but she was also saying that this is a first step. So from what we can tell, the flaccid penis is has equal sensitivity, but we hmm. have not tested it in uh, th- these penises in the wild. Let's put it that as way. As it were. As it were. Yeah. All right. As I want to. I want to get back in a second to the the broader questions around circumcision and the decision whether or not to circumcise a kid. But first of all, let's go. Let's let's talk about the other side of the science. What are the benefits of circumcision? So the main benefits are lowering your risk of infections. Um, and this starts from when the, the the baby is sort of in its first years of life, lowers the risk of getting like a urinary tract infection. Um, and then when they grow up and they start having sex of their own, it reduces their risk of a lot of different types of sexually transmitted infections. Probably the most famous is HIV, but also genital herpes and HPV. But And those are what we would call HIV and HPV, correct? <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> um, so, but I, I should say that the benefits of the, like say if we, all, all of those benefits in the American context um, hmm. are not as wrong as you want them to be. Let's put it that right. way. So like the UTI issue, for example, the urinary tract infection, it is true that mm-hmm. if you have a, a circumcision that the baby boy has a, has a lower chance of getting a UTI. But the chance they're going to get one of these infections is so low. Like it's less than 1%. So, you know, the experts we spoke to were like, is this really, a, like, is this a good enough reason to have this done? Um, and then, you know, as they grow up, like with HIV, in certain communities in America, there are higher rates of HIV, black men, men who have sex with men. Um, in the average, though, HIV rates are relatively low. So is that a good reason? There, there are sort of lots of questions that parents will have to sort of siphon through. It, I, don't, I, don't think it's an, I don't think science gives you an easy answer here. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, when I when I was, you know, it wasn't really a decision for me. I just didn't do it. Uh, and if anyone had tried to do it, it would have been a problem for me. Uh, so I don't think I'm an intactivist, except that, like, I didn't want to cut off a part of my kids when they were born. Like, I just felt pretty strongly about that, um, you know, for, for me. But I, 
you know, I remember being in the hospital. I remember the midwife who was actually the one who who would have done it. She, you know, she was the one who like came in and was like, I'm going to do this. She was basically like, um, yeah, I mean, you have to teach your kids when you they're learning how to take baths and showers on their own. You got to teach them how to like wash behind their ears. You got to teach them how to like wash between their toes. And this is just another thing I teach them to wash, like pull this part back and wash here. And it's really not any much of a bigger deal than that. If you're willing to have that conversation with your kids when teaching them how to take a bath, like, well, that's, you can um, yeah, kind of end it there. That's exactly what uh, the, the urologist that we spoke to, he, play, he played a, a big role in writing the American Academy of Pediatrics report on this. And he was like, if you can teach a kid to drive a car, you expect them to do like long division when they grow up. Like you can expect <laughs> them to pull back their foreskin and clean it. Like had exactly the same opinion as you. <laughs> so, so I guess, so, one of the things I've always been truly confused about with this issue is the bizarre history of it, like the timeline, like the American timeline of it. And I don't know if you can speak to this or not, but I I know that for for a lot of people, it's it's a it's a cultural religious thing that's going to happen regardless. Yeah. And it also seems like when I was a kid and when the kids that I grew up around were kids, everyone was getting circumcised. That was just a thing that everyone did. And now it seems like no one does. And I'm sort of like... How did circumcision become the normal thing and then stop becoming the normal thing? Like, was there like was there an, was there an, a public service ad campaign? Like, were, was there like was there a movement towards or against it? Like, I don't understand why so many guys from my generation. I was born in 1974. Why so many guys from my generation were automatically circumcised? No questions about it. Obviously, duh, that's what's going to happen. And and how that came to be and then how that stopped being the case um, yeah, recently. We, we did. It's it's such an interesting question because we, we did look into this. So for millennia, sort of all around the world, you have different cultures. You know, it's commonly associated with Judaism, but also Muslim, indigenous cultures around the world. In Australia, the Aboriginal, some of the Aboriginal communities there also have circumcision. But in the US, it's actually an, a relatively new phenomenon. So in the turn of the 20th century, uh, some doctors started saying, I think we should do circumcisions too. And it has mm. a very unscientific history. So circumcisions at one point were sort of promoted America, as... America, unscientific? That's hard to, I know, to go on. I know. I mean, I always like to think, oh, if doctors are promoting it, surely. But I, I'm so naive. <laughs> I'm so naive. Um, but as we talk about in the episode, the, the, the idea was that it was this sort of cure-all. And one of the things that it could cure, mm. just to tell you how unscientific it was, was masturbation. So like if, sure right like cornflakes exactly. weren't cornflakes also invented yes yeah, so exactly basically cornflakes and, and circumcision we should be good from there guys right just happy yeah. national and, so and that's why Americans never masturbate exactly so after it worked so well for that they were like we better start doing it for everyone that was the end of masturbation in America exactly. there we go precisely. Um, until, of course, the internet came along. Um, no, but so, so it has this sort of very unscientific uh, history. And then it wasn't until sort of the 1970s where there was this movement to start questioning it. So in the mm. 60s, I think the 60s were the peak of the, the sort of generation cut, if you will. Um, and then so you would have been kind of on the on the tip end of that. As it were. As it were. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Just sort of, sort of on the cutting edge of that generation. Um, okay. okay. <laughs> and then, sorry. Um, and then so we started having more questioning of it in the, in the 70s, sort of why are we doing this? This is kind of weird. Where is the scientific evidence for this? Mm. And then over the next few decades, they're actually, the, the scales 
sorry, the scales were tipped um, against. <laughs> so the scientific evidence really wasn't there. And then it was actually only once the research came in around HIV, as I understand it, showing that it had this huge benefit. And those studies only came in in like, whatever, in the 2000s. So it's actually kind of a relatively new thing. And those studies tipped the scale because HIV particularly at that time, was very scary. And then mm. it made mm. it made doctors think, oh, no, I think we should be doing this. But by then, people sort of had, had questions of their own. But, you, but you're right. This is a – for a long time, this has just been a fashionable thing, which is sort right. of quite odd to think about. So that – so that leads me to the second question, which is, from my understanding of the intactivists, that there there are a variety of complaints about it. But one of them, one of the ones that I find most striking has to do with people drawing a link between circumcision and some kind of psychological damage that is wrought at the hands of, of, of parents and a lot of times particularly mothers who have, like, taken our manhood. It, it always feels something weirdly misogynistic, just like another reason to blame mothers for something is what it always strikes me as. But that aside, there's been investigation or research into the physical aspects of it. Is there any, has there been any sort of, anyone taking seriously these psychological claims about this kind of layperson's idea that that circumcision is somehow inherently psychologically damaging. I think that there have there has been some research, and, and um, Carolyn, the same uh, researcher who was poking penises, has, has looked into this as well. This psychological element, and from what mm. we can tell, it's it's a very there's a there's a minority group out there, a loud group of men, a loud group of, of sort of a fringe group of men, um, who who are very upset about this, but they are in the minority and. The reasons that they're upset about this, from what I can tell from reading it, I mean, they blame the foreskin, yes, um, and they blame this. But And we could never do a controlled experiment on this because we can't give them back their foreskins, and obviously that's why they're upset. But I would hazard a guess that if they had their foreskins, they would be blaming their mothers for something else. <laughs> they find something else to blame their mothers for. I see. I think. So. I mean, I think. Yeah. I. I really. I see. You know, from from interacting with some of this community. I mean, I think they do have some really interesting questions um, about circumcision. But the ones who are taking such offence to this and really. Um, you know, claiming that this hate has destroyed their life. It seems like a, a bit of a scapegoat, but we we could never have the alternate view of history. Well, that seems hmm. right to me. It's, it seems right to me that it's it's very unlikely that the trauma of circumcision would be so powerful, and yet millions and millions of American men have, have experienced it. At the same time, I, as an American man and also as a Jewish American man who I was circumcised, I, I don't think it affected me adversely particularly, but I do slightly think that was a weird thing to have happened to me. That like when, when when I was a tiny baby, one of the first yeah. things that my loving parents did. I have great parents; they're wonderful parents. One of the first things they did, besides make sure that I had the food and the shelter and the love and the affection and the lovely upbringing and childhood, and also we're just gonna cut off the part of the flap of skin yeah, on the end of your, of your penis. It's it, weird. It seems super weird. It, it seems super. It's a part of your body and it's a part of your genitals, and that just seems like that's weird, man. It, it is weird, and it, it's interesting that it's it's popped up through millennia um, in 
in so many different cultures. I mean, we we mm. asked my my producer who's, who's like done a great job on this episode, Rose Rimler, asked our the urologist who we interviewed, like, what, what why do we have such an issue with foreskins like around the world? Like, how is it that like Indigenous Australians, as well as like Jewish communities in Eastern Europe, like for thousands of years, like why did so many different groups of people pop up and go, you know what, that bit of skin, I really think we should get rid of it. And like, <laughs> and there is this, you know, and then, then some people have these like evolutionary theories, like, oh, it's because it would have gotten so infected and inflamed, but we don't, we don't really know that. Like, I, I, right. There's a, there's a, I think it's would have been just as easy effectively to like in the, in the creek, you know, wash your penis in, thousands of years ago than it would have been today. I mean, probably a little bit harder. We don't have so much soap and water, but you know, I think there are questions around why, why did this happen so often? I've got weird. a question. Uh, so one of the things that I, I've always thought is weird about circumcision is this, um, and this is why, and this is not, so I'm, I am divorced from my kid's dad, uh, and uh, my kids aren't circumcised, but neither was their dad. So it was sort of a non-issue for him when I was just like, no one's going to cut off part of my baby's body. It's not going to happen. He was just like, that's fine. I didn't get circumcised. It's fine. Uh, but my husband, Kevin has said that if, you know, we we would never planned to have kids ever, like when we got together, but he has said to me that if he had a kid, if he had a boy, he'd want the boy to be circumcised because he is. And he and okay. and I just yes. think there's something super up. weird because I've heard this over yes. and over and over again, yeah. not just from him, but from a lot of men that like, I want my boys to look like me so that there's no confusion when we go to like the <laughs> locker room. or when, And I'm like, how many situations in your life are you like standing naked with your kid and you're like comparing? Like with that way, that's just yeah. weird. That's it doesn't. It doesn't look the same argument. anyway. It doesn't. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's, it's yeah. covered in hair and about eight times the size. <laughs> okay. If it looks so, the same, you have you have worse problems. I think, right? No, but no. Uh, yeah, I've always so that that idea of like passing on the way my penis looks to my. Did you hear that in the reporting? Does that he? As, does like, a he? Did, would he want his son's testicle? to be surgically <laughs> distended <laughs> so that they would resemble his more closely? Would he want his know. son to be equipped with a kind of merkin or pubic wig to, <laughs> yes. to make his son's genitals look more <laughs> like his own? But this is the thing, and this is like, we, I, I, it's a joke in our house only because like we were never going to have kids together, but that like we never had to have that fight because it like straight up would have been like a bad, bad one. But like he feels strongly about it and I never understood it. And I don't, when you were doing the story, did you encounter people? people who felt that way? Yes, yes. This is this is something that, that came up and it was also something that the urologist mentioned came up with uh, as well. And like I don't I don't want to be anyone to judge parents motivations for for anything um but it is it is odd. And and <laughs> it is <a> Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is. I think we can just agree on that. I'm so glad you brought that up, Rebecca, because I was just thinking about that. Like, I don't I don't understand any of it. I don't I mean, I, I genuinely don't understand any of it. Like, we did not circumcise when when we had kids because it didn't seem like it just there was no doesn't seem nice cause to like no, no one showed up and said, hey, what you know, like what's going on with the circumcision, bro? Like no one was involved. It just wasn't a thing. And so so we just didn't. And that seemed fine. And then I started being like, well, why did why did everyone in my generation circumcise just automatically? Like I was trying to understand my mother's decision making around that and she's passed on, so I can't ask her about that. But it but it does make me but I've never understood any of this. I feel almost less like a man when I listen to other men talk about this because I truly don't get it. Especially this thing about 
well, I want my son to look like me. It's like, why? <laughs> why? Where? In what context does that matter? Like, I don't, I honestly can't think of a real life context in which the shape of your son's penis and yours will have any, like, and the relationship between the two would have any impact on anything in either of your lives. Um, I, that's why I think the Not whole thing is just weird. Not your senior yearbook portraits or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Oh, no, but but I mean I, I I should say that there are there are benefits to it. So although it has this weird you know wonky history in America, um, for for people who are doing this for religious reasons and who don't question it, their their baby will get some scientific benefits out of that too. All right. Um, we have time for just one more question, Wendy. I know you don't have kids. Mm-hmm. If you were to have a son, what would you do? Um, I think. The science is such is oh, look. The science is there are benefits, and the science, particularly from a public health perspective, says yes, this is the right thing to do. But at the same time, it's definitely the science is not strong enough that this is the right thing for everyone to do. Um, it's not like a like the polio vaccine or something like that. So to cut to the chase. <laughs> <laughs> Um, look, if I, I'd have to obviously chat to my partner, but, uh, and his concerns are important. Um, if, if it was just me, I'd do it. You'd do mm. it? I'd do it. Little guy's getting the snip. Little guy's getting the snip. Um, <laughs> but, but I, you know, but it's so like, it's so messy that if my partner had strong opinions, I would, I would just say, oh, all right, let's not do it. Right. But, uh, left to own devices, Wendy Zuckerman's little guy. <laughs> Uh, in in order to uh, for for some minimal minimal improvements to the risk of of uh, relatively rare infections, yeah, uh, cutting it off. Yeah, I mean like <laughs> HIV, herpes, HPV, and and no, you know, no no known serious downsides. Yeah, I mean, don't put it on my tombstone. Yeah. <laughs> it's too late. I we already achieved had other beat. things in life, but um... I just ordered it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you wow. so much for uh, being with us. This was uh, very informative and enlightening. Uh, Wendy uh, Zuckerman is the host of Science Versus, podcast on the Gimlet Network. You can find that on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Her episode on circumcision is probably out now as you're listening to this. Thank you. Time now to take a question from a listener. This one came to us by email from Linda. Uh, if you want to send us a question, you can email us at slate.com or call us at 424-255-7833. This question is being read by Lena Wilson. Dear Mom and Dad are fighting. I have a seven-year-old daughter and five-year-old son. Some questions have come up about where babies come from. They know that they were in my tummy for several months and they know where they came out, One was a cesarean, the other was a vaginal birth. We've been a bit evasive about the topic of baby making beyond that. Basically, my husband and I have easily managed to change the subject when it has come up. But we would like to be prepared for tackling the more pointed questions about how they got to be in my tummy in the first place. And it would be nice to get more specific, because they are a little unaware that dad had anything to do with the whole thing. I'm happy to be honest and direct, but need a plan and some guidance, because admittedly, it is a little scary. I also worry that they'll end up sharing info with a kid at school and their parent will find out it came from us. I would love to hear your experiences and thoughts on this. Love the show. Linda. Well, 
My experience is that my children <laughs> got into my wife's tummy due to sexual intercourse. <laughs> <laughs> Same, except not with you. <laughs> it is funny, oh, right? It, this, is, this is a funny question because it's your kids who are the actual well, babies the, that were made. Like, and she's afraid yeah, to the tell thing them how they were made. Yeah, the thing that's funny about this is the implied fear that there's something terrifying about where babies come from. Like they come from a terrifying place that she has to somehow avoid sharing with the kids. And uh, I think that's a common thing among parents, actually. I mean, it's it's absurd, but I think it I think it's common. I think it's common to feel like, well, we can't tell them about sex because something will happen. Something will break if we tell them about sex. They'll probably immediately start trying to have it. (laughs) Exactly. They can't know until they, until an older cousin shows them a porn site during the sleepover. You know, they have to find out the natural way. They can't, we can't tell them. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, I don't, I mean, yeah, I think, I mean, there are a lot of books. There are a lot of books that cover this and, um, and uh, I, I think that seven and five is not too young to tell kids that sex exists and that's how babies come from. Uh, I think that there's age appropriate ways to do it. I think that even older, you know, whatever, like, but I, I think the idea that we should somehow tell them that that the day is coming later in which we will have to will have no choice but to explain sex. I think that's kind of a wonky way of looking at it. The reality is. Sex actually isn't a bad or terrible secretive thing, and it probably shouldn't be treated as such. And Mm. I would even go so far as to offer the theory that the fact that we as a culture tend to treat default towards treating sex as a bad, secretive, terrible thing may have some, some hand in our collective dysfunction around the issue. I'm just, that's just my theory. And so, um, (laughs) you know, because we do have a collective dysfunction and we do find ways to be incredibly harmful around sex, which isn't in and of itself uh, a harmful thing. And so, um, and so I, so I think that, I mean, maybe other people, and I'm sure the Facebook group will be great at chiming in on specific books uh, that would be really good for, like, introducing this stuff in an age-appropriate way. But the only thing I have to contribute is that it's absolutely fine and appropriate and okay to intro- to explain that actual sex is how babies get conceived. I do actually have a book to recommend for this particular thing. We gave our kids a book called It's Not the Stork. It's uh, written by Roby H. Harris and uh, illustrated by Michael Emberley. It's Not the Stork, a book about girls, boys, babies, bodies, families, and friends. What's good about it is it goes into so much, and this might be especially useful for for the the letter writer here. Um, It goes into so much detail about all of the aspects of the reproductive process other than like the part where the yes, dad puts the penis in the mom's vagina, right? Like there's right. so much stuff about fallopian tubes and ovaries and the semen yeah, and go. the testicles, and that it becomes <laughs> quite sort of almost boring. Like it, it, it yeah. definitely flattens. And that's what all, you want. It definitely flattens all want. of the thrill out of it and makes it like, well, right. here's a very clear, straightforward explainer <laughs> of this very complicated sort of Rube Goldberg device by which babies are made. And there's one part, there's one, pa- it's like a, it's in a comic book format. And there's one picture where it's like, oh, actually, that's quite striking that the dad puts his penis into the mom's vagina. Really? That really happens. But it, it really, it's just one part of this very complicated set of schematics 
pragmatic diagrams that um, it it would be, you know, it seems like the, the, the kid, at least our kids, by the end of it, were not fixated on that part of the story. Like like Eliza, mm. when she was five and had read this book, um, would talk at some length about fallopian tubes and about uh, ovulation and, and, you know, not in a deep scientific way. Um, but that stuff uh, occupied just as much space in her mind as the, the uh, mechanics of sexual intercourse. But more broadly, like, I, I just want to echo what, Carvel said like this is a thing that happens and the fact that we all have like a bunch of complicated stuff around sex uh, probably shouldn't get in the way of answering a very reasonable question that every kid is is going to ask about a, a almost universal uh, human activity and practice. You know, Carvel said something that um, actually makes me want to go a little farther than you guys did because um, so you know, you talk about like the, the cousin showing you porn on the internet or, you know, if you think about the fear we have about kids learning about sex too young, I think the only situation in which somebody articulates, you know, I learned about sex way too young was when something bad happened to them around sex when they mm-hmm. were way too young, when mm-hmm. they were abused or molested or when they had a dirty cousin who showed them, you know, you know, penthouse magazines when they were two years old or whatever. Then you are learning mm-hmm. about sex too young, but you're learning about it the wrong way, period. Um, I mm. don't actually think this is too young to talk to kids about sex, even without aid of a book. I mean, I think that um, books can be wonderful. I'm not saying they're not, but I also think that it's kind of a cheap way out of a conversation that can be a really valuable conversation to have very directly with your kids and kind of see where it goes. There could be some room for exploring there, and a book might be a good place to start, but I don't think that you even need to go so far as to try to make it as boring and clinical sounding as possible because you know, kind of teaching the concepts that this is a loving, you know, tender, good feeling act that consenting adults who love each other do together is a really great message. And, you know, I I don't think there's anything bad about, you know, giving that message and giving it language early. I mean, if another kid at school gets that from your kid and goes home and tells their parent and their parent has a problem with it, that's kind of either on the game of telephone of what your kid chose to say or not. But also perhaps it's on, you know, the fact that the other parent isn't ready, but that's not, it's kind of not your problem in a way. I I really do have an issue with this whole trying to shelter kids and shield them from the topic for too long, because I do think it does open them to learning about it in a way that you can't undo, like you can't put the genie back in the bottle uh, around. So um, I don't know. I mean, I, if, if there's somebody out there who feels differently, who feels they got a you know, an honest, uh, you know, truthful education about sex, but they were too young to get it. Feel free to at me if you want. But I just don't think um, there, there's that's really a possibility uh, outside of your horrible cousin showing you a penthouse magazine when you're three or four years old or, or something bad happening to you. I mean, I learned about sex too young because something bad happened to me. Like if I'd had a conversation with my mom or dad before I was, you know, whatever, five, six years old when like, you know, somebody showed me something they shouldn't have, there's an excellent chance that bad thing that happened to me would have played out very differently because there wouldn't have been as much mystery and weirdness and lack of ability to put words to body parts kind of around it. So I don't know. I, I am on, I'm in the camp of a little bit more transparency around this topic. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you raise an interesting point. I mean, I think that like, well, one of the things I also want to say is that, you know, like, okay. So putting aside for a moment, there, there are bad ways to be introduced to this 
genre of human experience um, and being shown when I was a kid, the penthouse magazine, which is exactly what happened to us. And then, um, and then now the internet or whatever is one set of things, but these, I mean, I mean, it's, I just want to give a shout out to the fact that like sexual abuse is not sex. It involves the same body parts, but it isn't sex. And when we're having a conversation with kids about sex, we're not talking, right. It's a, it's a different thing. That's abuse. That's a, that's a separate thing. And just because it, you know, I mean, just, just because it involves the same body parts, uh, cooking is, is not the same as playing basketball, even though they both involve your hands. And so, um, and so I think it's important to draw that distinction. I also think an interesting distinction that I'm now realizing is coming up here is the distinction between reproduction and sex, that like those two things are different things and that the parents, the kids are asking about reproduction and and which involves sex, but the kids aren't asking about sex. It doesn't sound like, hmm. right? The mm-hmm. kids aren't asking about like, and what is BDSM, mommy? And what <laughs> like what's a safe word? Like the kids aren't asking about the act, the physical act of pleasure between two adults, two, two consenting adults. They're asking about where do babies physically come from, and and that the, the parents are not afraid really to explain where babies come from because there's, as Gabe points out, with like the Rube Goldberg machine, there's actually nothing salacious about that. The parents are afraid of talking about sex because that becomes a part of how that conversation goes on. So I just think that's an important distinction to make. And I think as far as the book goes, part of the thing is that it helps parents find the language that they're comfortable with when sometimes they can't find it. And that's the true purpose of those books is to, because it's hard, it's it's hard to wade into because we as a culture, again, aren't good at separating these things out. We don't know how to separate abuse from sex. We don't know how to separate sex from reproduction where there's a lot Mm -hmm. we don't know how to do collectively. And so I think a lot of that comes to the fore when you have a little kid who you love and care for looking up to you innocently and asking you to help make sense of the world. It's what it really does is it shines a light on you that you don't quite have sense of it yet. You are mm-hmm. you're afraid that you can't talk about reproduction without talking about sex, and you're afraid that you can't talk then talk about sex without talking about something abusive or wrong. And all those things are conflated because that's where we are as a society. And so one of the reasons why books are helpful is because they help give parents who want to draw those distinctions the tools to draw those distinctions. Oh yeah, yeah. All right. Um, hope that was helpful. Uh, good luck. And um, when you get through that introductory conversation and, and want to move on to explaining BDSM, um, shoot us another email, <laughs> momanddad at slate.com. Um, that so that one directed to Gabe, he's our resident BDSM expert. That could also be a great segment for us <laughs> to do. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Time on the show now where we make recommendations. Uh, Rebecca, what have you got to recommend? 
Well, I'm going to recommend a podcast that um, if you have a kid who's into music, any genre of music, because this podcast covers them all, but I think some of the more interesting episodes are ones that cover uh, a style of music that may be outside your or your kid's wheelhouse. Uh, that's the podcast Song Exploder, which um, mm. it's been around for a while. So it's a gajillion episodes, which is the best kind of podcast to recommend, because if, if you love it, then you're not going to be done with it after six episodes. But basically uh, what the host of Song Exploder does is takes a a song and there are some episodes about TV themes, there are some episodes about rock songs, there are episodes about pop songs, rap songs, any kind of song you can imagine, and breaks down how the song was made. Not just how the song was written, but also how the song was produced, individual instruments, uh, special effects, computer tracks, compression, uh, really takes a look at every single element of these songs and it is super interesting and fun and if you can especially find one about a song that you know it's a great gateway uh, into the rest of the podcast because you will learn a lot about a song that you thought you knew a lot about perhaps beforehand and it's one of those ones i've been listening to it for years with my kids in the car um, since their early teens they've always been into music um, but I have to say, I've listened to it, too, in the car, people who aren't that into music, and they found it interesting, too. Um, and I think it's an interesting uh, kind of look into just how something is made that a lot of people don't know a lot about how to do. So I would check it out. It's called Song Exploder. Um, it's available anywhere you get your podcasts, and it's good for people of all ages. Nice. Uh, I am going to recommend a comic book series that Eliza has gotten really into recently, and I've gotten into it through her. It's from Marvel Comics. It's called Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. It's a great series mm. about a super genius fourth grader, happens to be an African-American girl who has a psychic link with a giant red dinosaur. Um, it's an exciting science fiction fantasy adventure story, but it's also just a great story about a, a, a kid who feels a little bit on the outside and different from the other kids around her. Um, and it's immediately one of those, uh, children's heroines who a certain kind of sensitive kid and perhaps a certain kind of sensitive adult, uh, will immediately find themselves relating to very hard. Um, the series is called Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. There are several volumes available from Marvel Comics. Carvel, what about you? What do you recommend? I'm going to recommend a show that m not my kids were watching, but my friend's kids were watching, which is the uh, H. John Benjamin-led uh, history cartoon, or sort of, not cartoon, I guess comedy show, The Who Was Show. It's a, I believe it's still in its first season. It's a 2018 show, and it's basically, you might call it drunk history for kids, but without <laughs> drunkenness, where drunkenness is replaced with dry humor at which H. John Benjamin excels. Um, I watched, uh, I happened to be at my friend's house and I watched a few episodes alongside their kids and it was absolutely amazing. Um, and so it does break through, um, you know, because it gives ex explanations of moments in history, a lot of fun language, a lot of great narration. The most recent episode was Julius Caesar and Bruce Lee. They take one person from history <laughs> and spend half the episode talking about one of them and half the episode talking about the other one and then making jokes about the connections between the two, which I think is hilarious. And so uh, if, you want, if you've ever wondered, how can I find Julius Caesar and Bruce Lee together in the same work of media, the Who Was show is there for you. So that's my recommendation. That's a great one. I love H. John Benjamin so much. <laughs> yes. Nice. Well, he's, he's from New Hampshire, I believe, actually. If Is I'm not he? Mistaken. I could be wrong. I oh. could be wrong about that, but I feel like he's. A, yeah. Watch out for bears, H. John Benjamin. <laughs> <laughs> 
And that's our show. If you have a question uh, that you want us to address, you can call us at 424-255-7833. You can let us know what you thought of the show, what you think of our advice, what you think about circumcision uh, by going to facebook.com slash groups slash Slate Parenting or just search for Slate Parenting on Facebook. Lots of lively discussion every week there, and my guess is that this week will be no exception. Our show is produced by Benjamin Frisch. For Carvel Wallace and Rebecca Lavoie, I'm Gabriel Roth, and we'll see you next week.